0: What's up, guys? Rachel Lindsay here, and I am teaming up with your favorite Ringer podcasters to deliver the Bravo drama and news that you've been craving on Morally Corrupt. It's the show about all things Bravo, from the housewives to summer house and everything in between. We'll be mentioning it all every week. Check it out on Spotify and theringer.com.
1: This episode of The Town is brought to you by FX's The Bear. Starring Jeremy Allen White, Io Adebri, and Eben moss Backrack. Season two follows as the crew work to transform their grimy sandwich joint into a next-level spot. It turns out the only thing harder than running a restaurant is opening a new one. Television Academy members can watch all episodes at fxnetworks.com FYC.
0: This episode is brought to you by Atlassian. Atlassian software like Jira, Confluence, and Trello help power global collaboration for all teams so they can accomplish everything that's impossible alone. Because individually, we're great, but together, we're so much better. Learn how to unleash the potential of your team
1: at Atlassian.com, dot com Atlassian. Tap the banner or visit this episode's page to learn more. All right, today is Friday, June 3rd, and we are here at the town headquarters little different today. We're going to do a mailbag episode. Uh, We're calling it the Town Hall. You ask questions, I will answer. Although for this first one, I didn't solicit questions. So I'm just going to use some questions that people have asked me. I do a newsletter twice a week for Puck. Uh, If you're not subscribed, you can go to puck.news and sign up for all of my insights that are outside of this show. And I ask, I periodically get emails and questions and texts from people that sometimes I answer in the newsletter, but a lot of them I don't. So today I brought in producer Craig and we are going to chat about some of the questions people ask me. Hollywood industry stuff behind the scenes. Um, Got a Tom Cruise question. I got a Lord of the Rings question. Uh, Craig, you got some questions to hurl at me as well?
0: I do. I have a couple follow-ups, so it's going to be great. Uh, Our first ever town hall.
1: Yes, exactly. All right. I am Matt Bellany and this is The Town.
0: Okay. Let's get started. First question. Totally agree that Lucasfilms has run Star Wars into the ground, but maybe this isn't a choice they made. Doesn't Disney just want streaming shows now over anything else?
1: Okay. So this, at the risk of going off on another Star Wars rant here, which I did the other day, um, that is not true. Disney would absolutely love it if the Star Wars franchise was as robust In film as it is in streaming. Now, it is true that the priority for the company is to build up Disney Plus. They have said that they want to get to 260 million subscribers in two years by 2024. That's going to be very difficult. So, they're going to throw as much resources as they can at Disney Plus, and that includes the franchises, which is, you know, first and foremost, Star Wars. So, yes, they want streaming shows, but... Look at what Marvel has done. Marvel is now an always-on proposition, meaning they've got streaming shows, they've got a few movies a year that come out in theaters, and it is a you know doesn't go a few weeks without some kind of Marvel content. And if Disney was on its shit, they would have Star Wars movies coming out every couple of years. Um, the original plan was every year. You know, when when Bob Iger, the former CEO, announced the deal to buy Lucasfilm and then produce new movies, he said there will be a new Star Wars movie every year. And for a few years, they did that. They had the episodes that came out after Force Awakens every couple years, and then in the middle they had Rogue One and then they had Solo. But what they found was that there was no long-term planning on these movies. Uh, The head of Lucasfilm, Kathleen Kennedy, took a very film-by-film approach to them and decided, okay, we're going to do everything we can to make this movie great. Whereas Marvel is always thinking two, three, five movies down the road. And the Star Wars strategy proved very limited. But... I think after that, they just kind of said, you know what? Maybe we're not able to make a movie every year. That is not what Disney wanted when they bought Lucasfilm. Say what you want about streaming, but this is pretty big failure to not have Star Wars movies in theaters.
0: Yeah, I get that. It's not good for the company, but to me, it's good for content. Taking a break sometimes and coming back fresh, uh, keep the people wanting, I actually think helps. But I have a follow-up question. Mm-hmm. You know how we did the streaming service draft? Mm -hmm. If the streamers themselves could draft shows in existing IP and properties, what would be the first pick? Right. If I was running a streaming
1: outlet and I had the first pick of a show or a franchise, because obviously you'd want Marvel. No, I don't want to do franchise,
0: actually. Let's just do shows. Stranger Things? Stranger Things is probably up there. First pick? I mean, that was
1: the first. In 2016, that show was so transformative for Netflix because it went global. Mm Mm-hmm. They were trying to launch the service in many different territories. Stranger Things proved popular, hugely popular in the U.S., but also popular around the world. Um, we just ran a piece at at Puck that went into some of the data on this. And it, every time Stranger Things comes back, Netflix gets a huge spike. So we'll see. It's been three years now since they had new episodes, and the kids are grown up. And they, you know, we've joked about how long the episodes are. We'll see how it does this time. But I, I would say Stranger Things is probably the number one franchise. Um, in terms of a show that I would draft first, uh, you know, there like Ozark was huge mm. for Netflix. Um, you know, Squid Game is the most popular streaming show. Isn't it fascinating that you you've just named three Netflix shows? Yeah, but that's because Netflix has the most scale. You know, like what would a show like, let's say in a in a universe where any show can go to any streamer, like what would The Mandalorian have done on Netflix?
0: Euphoria might be
1: euphoria there. is pretty big yeah and I, I would i would put that you know first round draft pick but i don't think up there right now to the very top i think you got to go big franchises netflix you know their whole thing is they're trying to spend their way to to compensate for not having 100 years of library yeah intellectual property to exploit so if netflix could have one pick of any other services show they would probably say we'd want mandalorian Imagine if Mandalorian had premiered on Netflix, an original Star Wars show that was actually really good. I think it I think it would have done gigantic numbers because keep in mind when Mandalorian premiered, Disney Plus was just launching, so there weren't as many subscribers as there are now. You know, Disney put out a press release saying that Obi-Wan Kenobi was the biggest debut Um, as I predicted they would. And yeah, okay. But Disney Plus is a lot bigger than it was two years ago when Mandalorian premiered.
0: Yeah, it's almost like Obi-Wan premiering so well is not a sign that Obi-Wan is a good show. It's a sign that everything they have done before Obi-Wan has been so good to now bring, to have enough people on platform to click episode one of Obi-Wan.
1: Sure, but that's the franchise business. The whole reason you have franchises is to de-risk your content. It doesn't have to be good if people already know what it is. The problem with original content is that if you don't know what it is, it's gotta be good to attract your attention.
0: That's sad though. That sentence you just said. It doesn't have to be good.
1: (laughs) It is sad, but that's the reality of the business is that, you know, I'm gonna watch the Obi-Wan show even though most of my friends are telling me it's pretty bad and that the Princess Leia character is pretty annoying. But I'm gonna watch it because I love Star Wars.
0: Speaking of IP, our next question here is about Lord of the Rings. Somebody asked, Lord of the Rings can't possibly be a good TV show, can it? Amazon does not have the skills.
1: <laughs> uh, okay. So I mean, there, there's a lot of things there. First of all, the only reason that everyone is paying so much attention to this Amazon show, um, uh, this Amazon Lord of the Rings show, is because they're spending about a billion dollars. on it.
0: Fifty million an episode, or
1: something? I mean, they spent. It, it's it's those are misleading numbers because you know you the first season of a show you build a world costs a ton of money and then you can utilize that through multiple seasons. The, the Crown was a famous example of that. They spent like a hundred million dollars on the first season, but they had to build the entire Buckingham Palace set and all of the, you know, they had to establish the world. So Amazon paid about $250 million for the rights to make a TV show based on Lord of the Rings. Then they are spending what is the estimates are that over five seasons, the ultimate cost will be about a billion dollars. So how much of that is in the first season and amortized over the whole thing, we don't know, but they're spending a shitload of money. That's clear. And it's unclear whether they can pull this off because keep in mind, there have been 3 very well received Lord of the Rings movies that were considered in their time kind of a miracle that Peter Jackson was able to make 3-hour Lord of the Rings movies and have them be entertaining and crowd pleasing and win best picture at the Oscars for the third one. Yeah, pretty surprising.
0: But then there were 3 follow-up movies that nobody really liked. The Hobbit movies weren't
1: great. Uh you know, they were I, I agree, not as good. Uh, they still did well. They did well enough at the box office, not Lord of the Rings level and did not win best picture like, the, like those didn't. Because as we've learned, you don't have to be good. Exactly. You don't have to be good once everybody had the association of Lord of the Rings being good. And I think the fact that Amazon is... Uh, kind of dining out on that association of quality with this franchise is really going to be put to the test with this show because who knows? It's not. I mean, they've said it's based on not the you know core Lord of the Rings story. It's based on the indices and some of the notes that Tolkien made and some of the like periphery characters around it. So we don't even know what the story. Of this show is going to be. It'll get a ton of attention. They actually I, I reported this this week that they actually just brought in the uh woman who ran marketing at Warner Brothers for the Lord of the Rings movies and for The Hobbit. So they are, you know, absolutely trying to recapture some of that magic around the original release of those movies. Um, we'll see if they can do it. It's it's a fascinating endeavor because. Amazon has not tried something on this scale before. And the whole thing came about basically because Jeff Bezos saw Game of Thrones and was like, where's my Game of Thrones? <laughs> and here we are five years later. They're about to spend a billion dollars on the Bezos Game of Thrones at the same time that an actual Game of Thrones prequel, uh, House of the Dragon, is going to be opposite. it. House of the Dragon's coming out late, uh, late August, I believe. That I think has a lot of heat on it, only because it's the same creative team at HBO that did the originals. You know, it's not the not Benioff and Weiss; those guys are gone. But it is the HBO development process, and you know they did a, a previous spinoff that they basically put in the garbage and said we don't want to tr- we don't want to launch with that one. So they put a lot of time and effort into this one, and we'll see if that one pays off. Fascinating uh, battle here.
0: Okay, next question here. This is a little bit more niche. Why hasn't HBO renewed "Our Flag Means Death," which is a comedy on HBO with like Taika Waititi and other people? He said, uh, or they said, love that show, and I've seen numbers showing it's super popular in streaming because there's no ratings uh, every morning. I think so. There's maybe they mean there's no ratings publicly to look at. Uh, Is it is it really hard to figure out why shows get canceled now?
1: Uh, Okay, first of all, "Our Flag Means Death" has been renewed. Um, oh. It was renewed this week. So it has been renewed for season two. And secondly, um, there is a backstory on on this. You know, it's an interesting one because the renewal did not come immediately, even though there's some data out there from Parrot analytics that produces what's called a demand metric. You know, the streaming services don't release ratings, generally, unless it behooves them or, you know, Netflix creates a top 10 without actual accountability or numbers uh, beyond what they release. So there's no outside third party that like is the accepted metric for streaming like there is with Nielsen in television. So it's it's allowed a lot of these companies to come up and and create their own metrics for ratings essentially. And Parrot Analytics is one of them, and they produce what's called the demand metric, which shows what the you know everything from the smart television uh, data on who's watching what to uh, Google searches for particular properties and other metrics that show what people are interested in. And Our Flag Means Death was among the top shows in that metric, Um, yet it didn't get immediately renewed. Now, in this particular show, in this case, there were some cost issues. It's actually a really expensive comedy to do because they have If you've ever seen it, they do, you know, half the show is them on the water Mm -hmm. and they have technology that costs a lot to produce the kind of seafaring effects. Um, So they actually HBO was trying to work out a deal with the producers and they had to cut about 30% of the budget to get the show renewed for a second season. Mm. And that's a calculus that happens a lot. You know, obviously these networks want to keep down the cost of these shows, which has grown exponentially over the past five to 10 years just because of the streaming wars and how much competition there is for shows um, and the demand for higher quality content. And then, you know, the producers want to keep everyone paid and say, hey, wait a second, we're we're a successful show. You should be paying us more, not less. (laughs) for season two. So, you know, there are contractual obligations and guilds get involved. But a lot of shows have to make concessions to get themselves additional seasons. Um, And then to the second part of the question on how these, you know, what's a hit in the streaming age? That is the eternal question because some of these streamers make baffling decisions on what they renew and what they don't. I was going
0: to ask about what is the process for greenlighting and renewing shows? Like, you know, like HBO with succession, like greenlighting succession or renewing, our flag means death. Is this just a group of executives sitting in a room deciding whether or not, you know, they look at how much it made, they look at how many viewers it's had and just kind of make a gut call? Sometimes, sometimes. But, you know, on a renewal, there's a lot of data at play. Right, but what you know, about they, green they can, lighting? Like something brand green new? Green
1: lighting is a much different process because it can be everything from star to auspices, meaning, you know, the kind of creator. If, if there is a a solid creative plan for what a show is going to look like, two, three seasons down the line to, you know, we want to appeal, we need a show, if you're HBO, we want a show that's going to appeal to the very online young audience. And it's going to be racy. And it's going to be this generation's calling card of what it's like to be young in America. Because they know that they're launching HBO Max, which is going to be targeted at a younger demographic. Boom, we've got euphoria. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's a it's a whole confluence event. It can honestly be a relationship that a executive has with a particular creator where they trust them or they've worked together before. You know, it can be a a, a really great pilot script that everyone just says, let's make this. It could be everything. There's there's a million stories on how shows get made. That's what makes it so infuriating for people who are trying to break into the business because there is no path.
0: It's arbitrary. There is no
1: yeah, you write this and you're going to automatically get a show. There's no formula.
0: Well, I remember hearing about White Lotus, that Mike White show that everybody passed on it. And then the pandemic hit and a lot of things got canceled and they, need, they needed something new that they could film in like a much more COVID-friendly, safe way. And they're like, hey, let's revisit White Lotus. That's, we could just film in a hotel in Hawaii that's empty. And of course, it turned out to be a, a hit. Everybody liked it.
1: Right. And now they're doing a second season and, uh, you know, that, that'll be a franchise for HBO now. You know, it's, you never know. Everyone, everyone made fun of Queen's Gambit at Netflix because that was, that was something that was, you know, about a young female chess player. Like, why would that be a hit? People internally made fun of it. Um, and they actually shifted away from those kinds of shows, you know, while it was being made or shortly after. And I don't think that show would get made at Netflix today. But at the time, it was, you know, they had a particular strategy where they were trying to do high quality, awards-worthy stuff. They had a creator with a vision and they had an executive who said, at the time, Cindy Holland, like, I want to do this. And it turned out to be a huge hit.
0: Do you think a Cindy Holland type or somebody who basically just has the intuition is the most important and influential piece of a streamer or a network? The person just saying, I think this is going to be a hit and then having that best kind of gut call
1: It's not just hits, but I I do think that the executive talent is a a key component of all of this because you look at the outlets that have been consistently successful creatively over the years. You know, I think of FX, which has had the same leadership in John Landgraf. For many years, um, if you look at HBO, you know they'd had a little bit of turnover in that. You know, Richard Plepler, the CEO, and they had Michael Lombardo, who was running creative there. Um, they all they left, uh, but they had this bench of great trained executives. Casey Bloys, who currently runs HBO and HBO Max, he's been there many years, and he initially was in in, in comedy, and then he got experience with other things. And that is there is a a way of doing things at HBO that just produces creatively successful shows. They have a much better track record and hit record than some of these other streamers. And it's because I think the executive talent there really focuses on creativity and getting the best possible product out there. And some of the others are just in the volume game. So yes, I do think it matters.
0: Last question. Um, Somebody says, you mentioned in the newsletter, which by the way, everybody should subscribe to, that Tom Cruise gets 10% of the revenue for Top Gun 2. What revenue is that? Everything, even DVDs, streaming? How far does it go?
1: So the the Tom Cruise, I wrote a whole column about this. The Tom Cruise Top Gun Maverick deal was was somewhat unique in that, you know, he is so associated with this franchise and he's kind of a he's you don't do it without him. So he was able to negotiate a deal where he got paid 12.5 million dollars up front according to my sources, but that's change according to, you know, compared to what he can make. He has the potential to make Hundreds of millions of dollars if this movie is a gigantic success. He gets 10% of what's called first dollar gross. So he gets every dollar that comes into the studio, 10% of that goes to him. Mm. Now that's not 10% of box office. Studios typically get about half of the box office revenue from theaters. It's a little bit more in the US. It can be a little bit less in foreign territories. I don't know exactly what the breakdown is for Top Gun. I think it, Will likely vary by weekend, uh, but assume that Cruz gets about ten percent of what the studio takes in. That's not just from the box office; that's also on the downward revenue streams, meaning pay-per-view, meaning DVD sales, meaning uh, you know uh, if they do a library deal. He's getting whatever in, in perpetuity, money that,
0: just as long as they it keeps making yes, money. Yes, and
1: it es- and it escalates, meaning his percentage goes up. As the movie makes more money, so if it let's say this movie does seven hundred million at the box office, he may get a higher percentage because a threshold is 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 triggered and it goes up. If it makes a billion dollars, his percentage may go up to fifteen percent or twenty percent. I don't know the specifics of that, uh, but what it does is it incentivizes Cruz to. Go out there and market the crap out of this movie, which he's been doing, and make the best possible movie that he can. And there's a lot of debate in Hollywood because the streaming model is a upfront payment model for the most part, where people get a perhaps higher fee upfront, and then they don't share in any of the revenue down the line. And there's a lot of people that say that puts the incentives in the wrong place. You want the star or the director to be so incentivized to make the best possible movie they can. Um, The producer, Jason Blum, wrote a great piece for the New York Times about this. You want to be incentivized to make the best possible movie, to market the shit out of it, and to have the best result for everybody. But when you're paying people up front, they're paid. You can, ha- you know, most actors won't do this, but if you want, you can half-ass it because you're getting paid regardless.
0: Right, it's like a, it's like a, an athlete signed on their rookie deal, right? They just got drafted. They're not making a ton of money. They're playing their hearts out for that second contract. But once they get the second contract, then people can start making the comments about, oh, the second he got paid, he stopped trying. And it's like- if Totally. The, if the actor or writer gets paid all this money up front, they already have the money. The incentive to make this thing really good isn't as high. But if you give back-end points- then, there, well, not only is the show cheaper to make, and if it flops, it's not as big of a flop, right? Because you didn't lose as much money. And two, if it's a huge hit, great, everybody wins.
1: Yeah, and arguably, the actor is not just playing in the sports analogy for this movie. They're playing for the next movie and the one after that. So yeah. you want to be the best possible actor you can be at all times, and there are awards and other incentives that you could get if you're great. But, as Jason Blum pointed out in this New York Times piece, The incentives are bad there. The incentives are to just churn it out, get it done, get it on the streamer. And I think most people would argue that the movies that go direct to streaming, a lot of them haven't had the same level of quality as you would have seen in movies that went directly to theaters. And the financial incentives are often different. And people say that that is one reason why. I don't know if that's totally the case, but that is one reason why.
0: Is it harder to apply backend points and incentives to shows that are strictly on streaming because there's less like material? sure? Well, that's,
1: yeah, that's why they say they do it. You know, we don't. they don't have box office. Their metrics are subscriber acquisition and retention. Yeah. And how do you incentivize that? But there are ways to do it. There are ways, you know, there are ways to say, hey, if, You know, this gets to X amount of viewership, you get X amount more money. Or Netflix
0: knows how many people are watching their shows, even if they don't release it publicly. Couldn't they go to Adam McKay and say, "Hey, your next movie, if it gets 20 million views in the first week, you get this much money." Couldn't
1: they do that? Yeah, yeah. and, And I don't know that they haven't done deals like that. I do know that they avoid that if they can. They want to capture all the value forever of this movie or show that you do for them, and they're going to pay you a little bit more than you would normally make for that privilege. So people are getting paid more upfront. And when you see these big deals like, oh, Ryan Murphy got $300 million from Netflix. Shonda Rhimes got $100 million from Netflix. Yeah, they do. But they are surrendering over their back ends and the ownership interests that they may have negotiated otherwise.
0: But then who cares? Because then they just got $300 million and now Ryan Murphy needs to write a hit show. It's a lot harder to write a hit show on a yacht than it is in a shitty apartment, I feel like.
1: Well, there are people who do it and he has a team around him, but but a lot of people have pointed out that the Ryan Murphy Netflix shows are not as popular and not as good as the ones that he was making for FX. It's a whole trade-off and you know, I'm sure someone could come on here and argue the opposite that uh you know that the the money guaranteed up front is way better than having this contingent compensation that you may or may not get. And it's all in the studio's control. And sometimes you might have to audit them or even sue them to get it. The the other, you know, the way the streamers do it is much cleaner. Yeah. It leads to headlines where you could say, oh, you know, Leo DiCaprio got 20 million or 30 million up front for this movie. Okay, great. But when Leo DiCaprio does Wolf of Wall Street and it makes 500 million worldwide, Leo DiCaprio does pretty damn good when that happens.
0: Yeah, to me, it's like if, if you want to, if you're in favor of, you know, the sanctity of creativity, I feel like you're in favor of back end points more than the upfront payments. But I get why a studio want, likes the upfront payment model, like for what you reasons you just stated.
1: Yeah, it's like, you know, the way people describe it in town is, you know, the home runs have gone away. There's no home runs anymore. The home runs are the TV show that goes seven seasons on a network, and you have a profit participation interest, and all of a sudden, a writer who is struggling to get a staffing job is now worth $500 million. Those have gone away. You know, The Modern Family job, and the, yeah. the, the Modern Family situation, or the Chuck Lorre shows, for the most part, those have gone away. Um, but there's a lot more singles and doubles now than there used to be where you, you know, get on a show, it goes a couple seasons, uh, Netflix will pay you above your quote to do it, and you get paid more. And, you know, you get stars that want to come in for a limited season, uh, for a limited series, like uh, Jared Leto and Anne Hathaway doing one season of We Crashed at Apple. They're going to get huge paydays, both of them. They're not going to have to deal with any of that other stuff associated with a TV show, and they can come in and out and do it, and
0: they're done. I I thought the Blum article was... Very interesting. Why isn't, tell me this before we go. Why isn't there a studio like a Blumhouse, but for comedy where they take on cheap projects and they only offer up back end points where if it becomes super bad, you get a bunch of money. But if it doesn't, it's a cheap comedy that we made and it's just a little comedy studio hub. Maybe that's Funny or Die.
1: Why doesn't that exist? Uh, I think, I think, uh, Craig Horlbeck productions was just born. Um, but no, the reason is, is because comedy is seen as a riskier genre than horror, but they're which cheap is as hell. Made, I mean,
0: you can make, they cheap. are,
1: but, but the multiple on horror movies and we should get Jason Blum in here to talk about this, but the multiple on horror movies can potentially be huge. They, they are still a viable genre in movie theaters people will go to see them in theaters you can make a 10 million dollar horror movie that opens to 30 40 million dollars yeah yeah and in comedy it's just not the same it's harder you sometimes will need big stars or effects to get that audience it's you know the days of the apatow knocked up where it's just you know uh, just people being funny that doesn't feel as theatrical as it did before maybe you can make it for streaming and maybe you can make it for a price and make a profit on these so there should be a market for a comedy you know centric small studio but horror had an advantage and jason was very smart in focusing on horror to launch his company
0: well jason you and i can start the blumhouse for comedy all right i think that concludes
1: the first town hall All right, so that is the show. I want to thank, actually, no guest. I'm the guest. I want to thank myself. Nice. Producer Craig Robeck. And we want to thank you. We'll see you next week.
0: This episode is brought to you by 20th Century Studios, Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. As a ruthless
1: king builds his empire at the expense of the remaining human race, a young ape will fight for the future of apes and humans alike. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes, enter the kingdom in IMAX on
0: May 10th. And in theaters everywhere, get tickets now. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You might say all kinds of stuff when things go wrong, but these are the words you really need to remember. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. They've got options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most,